0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead
1: come back, mother? What's the secret? The Company of Wolves by Angela Carter One beast, and only one, howls in the woods at night. The wolf is carnivore incarnate and he's as cunning as he is ferocious, once he's had a taste of flesh, then nothing else will do. At night, the eyes of wolves shine like candle flames, yellowish, reddish, but that is because the pupils of their eyes fatten on darkness and catch the light from your lantern to flash it back at you. Red, for danger. If a wolf's eyes reflect only moonlight, Then they gleam a cold and unnatural green, A mineral, a piercing colour. If the benighted traveller spies those luminous, Terrible sequins stitched suddenly on the black thickets, Then he knows he must run, If fear has not struck him stock still. But those eyes are all you will be able to glimpse Of the forest assassins, As they cluster invisibly round your smell of meat, As you go through the wood, unwisely late. They will be like shadows, they will be like wraiths. Grey members of a congregation of nightmare. Hark, his long wavering howl, an aria of fear made audible. The wolf song is the sound of the rending you will suffer, in itself, a murdering. It is winter and cold weather. In this region of mountains and forest there is now nothing for the wolves to eat. Goats and sheep are locked up in the byre, the deer departed for the remaining pasturage on the southern slopes. Wolves grow lean and famished. There is so little flesh on them that you could count the starveling ribs through their pelts if they gave you time before they pounced. Those slavering jaws, the lolling tongue, The rhyme of saliva on the grizzled chops, Of all the teeming perils of the night and the forest, Ghosts, hobgoblins, ogres that grill babies upon gridirons, Witches that fatten their captives in cages for cannibal tables, The wolf is the worst, for he cannot listen to reason. You're always in danger in the forest where no people are. Step between the portals of the great pines where the shaggy branches tangle about you, trapping the unwary traveller in nets, as if the vegetation itself were a plot with the wolves who live there, as though the wicked trees go fishing on behalf of their friends. Step between the gateposts of the forest with the greatest trepidation, And infinite precautions. For if you stray from the path, For one instant the wolves will eat you. They are grey as famine, They are unkind as plague. The grave eyed children of the sparse villages Always carry knives with them When they go to tend the little flocks of goats That provide the homesteads with acrid milk And rank maggoty cheese. Their knives are half as big as they are. The blades are sharpened daily. But the wolves have ways of arriving at your own hearthside. We try and try, but sometimes we cannot keep them out. There is no winter's night. The cottager does not fear to see a lean, grey, famished snout questing under the door and there was a woman once bitten in her own kitchen as she was straining the macaroni. Fear and flee the wolf, for worst of all, the wolf may be more than he seems. And there was a hunter once near here, the trapped a wolf in a pit. This wolf had massacred the sheep and goats, eaten up a mad old man who used to live by himself in a hut halfway up the mountains and sing to Jesus all day pounced on a girl looking after the sheep. But she made such a commotion that men came with rifles and scared him away and tried to track him to the forest. But he was cunning and easily gave them the slip. So this hunter dug a pit and put a duck in it for bait, all alive-o, and he covered the pit with straw smeared with wolf dung. Quack, quack, went the duck, and a wolf came slinking out of the forest. A big one. "'A heavy one. "'He weighed as much as a grown man, "'and a straw gave way beneath him. "'Into the pit he tumbled. "'The hunter jumped down after him, "'slit his throat, "'cut off all his paws for a trophy. "'And then no wolf at all lay in front of the hunter, "'but the bloody trunk of a man, "'headless, footless, dying, dead. "'A witch from up the valley "'once turned an entire wedding party into wolves "'because the groom had settled on another girl.' She used to order them to visit her at night from spite, and they would sit and howl around her cottage for her, serenading her with their misery. Not so very long ago, a young woman in our village married a man who vanished clean away on their wedding night. The bed was made with new sheets, and the bride laid down on it. The groom said he was going out to relieve himself, insisted on it for the sake of decency. And she drew the coverlet up to her chin and lay there. And she waited, and she waited, and then she waited again. Surely he's been gone a long time, until she jumps up in bed and shrieks to hear a howling coming on the wind from the forest. That long-drawn, wavering howl has, for all its fearful resonance, some inherent sadness in it as if the beasts would love to be less beastly, if only they ever knew how, and never cease to mourn their own condition. There is a vast melancholy in the canticles of the wolves, melancholy melancholy infinite as the forest, endless as these long nights of winter. And yet that ghastly sadness, that mourning for their own irredeemable appetites, can never move the heart, for not one phrase in it hints at the possibility of redemption. Grace could not come to the wolf from its own despair, only through some external mediator, so that sometimes the beast will look as if he half welcomes the knife that dispatches him. The young woman's brothers searched the outhouses and the haystacks, but never found any remains, so the sensible girl dried her eyes and found herself another husband, not too shy to piss into a pot who spent their nights indoors. She gave him a pair of bonny babies, and all went right as a trivet until, one freezing night, the night of the solstice, the hinge of the year, when things do not fit together as well as they should, the longest night, her first good man came home again. A great thump on the door announced him she was stirring the soup for the father of her children, and she knew him the moment she lifted the latch to him, although it was years since she'd won black for him, and now he was in rags, and his hair hung down his back, and never saw comb alive with lice. "'Here I am again, missus,' he said. "'Get me my bowl of cabbage and be quick about it.' Then... A second husband came in with wood for the fire, and when the first one saw she'd slept with another man, and worse, clapped his red eyes on her little children who crept into the kitchen to see what all the din was about, he shouted. I wish I were a wolf again, to teach this whore a lesson. So a wolf he instantly became, and tore off the eldest boy's left foot before he was chopped by the hatchet they used for chopping logs. But when the wolf lay bleeding... "'and gasping its last, the pelt peeled off again, "'and he was just as he had been years ago "'when he ran away from his marriage bed, "'so that she wept and her second husband beat her. "'They say there's an ointment the devil gives you "'that turns you into a wolf the minute you rub it on, "'or that he was born feet first and had a wolf for his father, "'and his torso is a man's, but his legs and genitals are a wolf's, "'and he has a wolf's heart.' Seven years is a werewolf's natural span, but if you burn his human clothes, you condemn him to wolfishness for the rest of his life. So old wives hereabouts think it's some protection to throw a hat or an apron at the werewolf, as if clothes made the man. Yet by the eyes, those phosphorescent eyes, you know him in all his shapes, the eyes alone unchanged by metamorphosis. Before he can become a wolf, the lycanthrope, "'Strips, stark, naked. "'If you spy a naked man among the pines, "'you must run as if the devil were after you. "'It is midwinter, and the robin, the friend of man, "'sits on the handle of the gardener's spade and sings. "'It is the worst time in all the year for wolves, "'but this strong-minded child insists "'she will go off through the wood. "'She's quite sure the wild beasts cannot harm her, "'although well-warned, She lays a carving knife in the basket her mother has packed with cheeses. There's a bottle of harsh liquor distilled from brambles, a batch of flat oat cakes baked on the hearthstone, a pot or two of jam. The girl will take these delicious gifts to a reclusive grandmother, so old the burden of her years is crushing her to death. Granny lives two hours trudge through the winter woods. The child wraps herself up in her thick shawl, draws it over her head. She steps into her stout wooden shoes. She's dressed and ready, and it is Christmas Eve. The malign door of the solstice still swings upon its hinges, but she has been too much loved ever to feel scared. Children do not stay young for long in this savage country. There are no toys for them to play with, so they work hard and grow wise. But this one, so pretty, and the youngest of her family, a little latecomer, had been indulged by her mother and the grandmother who knitted her the red shawl that today has the ominous, if brilliant look of blood on snow. Her breasts have just begun to swell. Her hair is like lint, so fair it hardly makes a shadow on her pale forehead Her cheeks are an emblematic scarlet and white, and she's just started her woman's bleeding, the clock inside her that will strike henceforward once a month. She stands and moves within the invisible pentangle of her own virginity. She is an unbroken egg. She is a sealed vessel. She has inside her a magic space, the entrance to which is shut tight with a plug of membrane. She's a closed system. "'She does not know how to shiver. "'She has a knife, and she is afraid of nothing. "'Her father might forbid her if he were home, "'but he is away in the forest gathering wood, "'and her mother cannot deny her. "'The forest closed upon her like a pair of jaws. "'There's always something to look at in the forest. "'Even in the middle of winter, "'the huddled mounds of birds succumb to the lethargy of the season.' Heaped on the creaking boughs and too forlorn to sing. The bright frills of the winter fungi on the blotched trunks of the trees. The cuneiform slots of rabbits and deer. The herringbone tracks of the birds. A hair as lean as a rasher of bacon streaking across the path where the thin sunlight dapples the russet brakes of last year's bracken. When she heard the freezing howl of a distant wolf, a practised hand sprang to the handle of her knife, but she saw no sign of a wolf at all, nor of a naked man neither. But then she heard a clattering among the brushwood, and there sprang onto the path a fully clothed one, a very handsome young one, in the green coat and wide-awake hats of a hunter, laden with carcasses of game birds. She had her hand on her knife at the first rustle of twigs, But he laughed with a flash of white teeth when he saw her and made a comic yet flattering little bow. She'd never seen such a fine fellow before, not among the rustic clowns of her native village. So on they went, through the thickening light of the afternoon. Soon they were laughing and joking like old friends. When he offered to carry her basket, she gave it to him, although her knife was in it, because he told her his rifle would protect them. As the day darkened, it began to snow again. She felt the first flakes settle on her eyelashes, but now there was only half a mile to go, and there would be a fire and hot tea and a welcome, a warm one surely for the dashing huntsman as well as for herself. The young man had a remarkable object in his pocket. It was a compass. She looked at the little round glass face in the palm of his hand and watched the wavering needle with a vague wonder. He assured her that this compass had taken him safely through the wood on his hunting trip because the needle always told him with perfect accuracy where the north was. She didn't believe it. She knew she should never leave the path on the way through the woods or else she would be lost instantly. He laughed at her again. Gleaming trails of spittle clung to his teeth. He said if he plunged off the path into the forest that surrounded them— "'he would guarantee to arrive at her grandmother's house "'a good quarter of an hour before she did, "'plotting his way through the undergrowth with his compass "'while she trudged a long way along the winding path. "'I don't believe you. "'Besides, aren't you afraid of the wolves?' "'He only tapped the gleaming butt of his rifle and grinned. "'Is it a bet?' he asked her. "'Shall we make a game of it? "'What will you give me if I get to your grandmother's house before you?' "'What would you like?' she asked, disingenuously. "'A kiss. "'Commonplaces of a rustic seduction,' she lowered her eyes and blushed. "'He went through the undergrowth and took her basket with him. "'But she forgot to be afraid of the beasts, although now the moon was rising. "'For she wanted to dawdle on her way to make sure the handsome gentleman would win his wager.' Grandmother's house stood by itself a little way out of the village. The freshly falling snow blew in eddies about the kitchen garden, and the young man stepped delicately up the snowy path to the door as if he were reluctant to get his feet wet, swinging his bundle of game and the girl's basket and humming a little tune to himself. There's a faint trace of blood on his chin. He's been snacking on his catch.' "'He raps upon the panels with his knuckles. "'Aged and frail, is three-quarters succumb to the mortality. "'The ache in her bones promises her, "'and almost ready to give in entirely. "'A boy came out from the village to build up a hearth for the night an hour ago, "'and the kitchen crackles with busy firelight. "'She has a Bible for company. "'She's a pious old woman. "'She's propped up on several pillows in the bed set into the wall peasant fashion.' wrapped up in the patchwork quilt she made before she was married, more years ago than she cares to remember. Two china spaniels with liver-coloured blotches on their coats and black noses sit on either side of the fireplace. There's a bright rug of woven rags on the pantiles. The grandfather clock ticks away her eroding time. We keep the wolves outside by living well. He rapped upon the panels with his hairy knuckles. "'It's your granddaughter,' he mimicked in a high soprano. "'Lift up the latch and walk in, my darling.' "'You can tell them by their eyes, eyes of a beast of prey, nocturnal, devastating eyes as red as a wound. "'You can hurl your Bible at him and your apron after, Granny.' You thought that was a sure prophylactic against these infernal vermin. Now call on Christ and his mother and all the angels in heaven to protect you. But it won't do you any good. His feral muzzle is sharp as a knife. He drops his golden burden of gnawed pheasant on the table and puts down your dear girl's basket too. Oh my God, what have you done with her? Off with his disguise, that coast of forest-coloured cloth, the hat with its feather tucked into the ribbon. His matted hair streams down his white shirt, and she can see the lice moving in it. The sticks in the hearth shift and hiss. Night and the forest has come into the kitchen with darkness tangled in its hair. He strips off his shirt. His skin is the colour and texture of vellum. A crisp stripe of hair runs down his belly. His nipples are ripe and dark as poison fruit. But he's so thin, you could count the ribs under his skin. If only he gave you the time. He strips off his trousers and she can see how hairy his legs are. His genitals. Huge. Ah. Huge. The last thing the old lady saw in all this world was a young man. Eyes like cinder's. "'naked as stone, approaching her bed. "'The wolf is carnivore incarnate. "'When he had finished with her, "'he licked his chops and quickly dressed himself again, "'until he was just as he had been when he came through her door. "'He burned the inedible hair in the fireplace "'and wrapped the bones up in a napkin "'that he hid away under the bed in the wooden chest, "'in which he found a clean pair of sheets.' These he carefully put on the bed instead of the tell-tale stained ones. He stowed away in the laundry basket. He plumped up the pillows and shook out the patchwork quilt. He picked up the Bible from the floor, closed it, and laid it on the table. All was as it had been before, except the grandmother was gone. The sticks twitched in the grate, the clock ticked, and the young man sat patiently, deceitfully, beside the bed in Granny's nightcap. Rat-a-tap-tap.
0: Who's there?
1: He quavers in Granny's antique falsetto. Only your granddaughter? So she came in, bringing with her a flurry of snow that melted in tears on the tiles, and perhaps she was a little disappointed to see only her grandmother sitting beside the fire. But then— He flung off the blanket and sprang to the door, pressing his back against it so that she could not get out again. The girl looked around the room and saw there was not even the indentation of her head on the smooth cheek of the pillow, and how, for the first time she'd seen it so, the Bible lay closed on the table. The tick of the clock cracked like a whip. She wanted her knife from her basket, but she didn't dare reach for it because his eyes were fixed upon her, huge eyes that now seemed to shine with a unique interior light, eyes the size of saucers, saucers full of Greek fire, diabolic phosphorescence. But what big eyes you have! All the better to see you with. No trace at all of the old woman except for a tuft of white hair that had caught in the bark of an unburned log. When the girl saw that, she knew... She was in danger of death. Where's my grandmother? There's nobody here but we too, my darling. Now a great howling rose up all around them, near, very near, as close as the kitchen garden, the howling of a multitude of wolves. She knew the worst wolves are hairy on the inside, and she shivered. In spite of the scarlet shawl, she pulled more closely round herself, as if it could protect her, although it was as red as the blood she must spill. Who has come to sing us carols, she said. These are the voices of my brothers, darling. I love the company of wolves. Look out of the window and you'll see them. Snow half-caked the lattice and she opened it to look into the garden. It was a white night of moon and snow. The blizzard whirled round the gaunt grey beasts who squatted on their haunches among the rows of winter cabbage, pointing their sharp snouts to the moon and howling as if their hearts would break. Ten wolves, twenty wolves, so many wolves she could not count them. Howling in concert, as if demented or deranged, their eyes reflected the light from the kitchen and shone like a hundred candles. It's very cold, poor thing, she said. No wonder they howl so. She closed the window on the wolves' threnody and took off her scarlet shawl the colour of poppies, the colour of sacrifices, the colour of her menses, and since her fear did her no good, She ceased to be afraid. What shall I do with my shawl? Throw it on the fire, dear one. You won't need it again. She bundled up her shawl and threw it on the blaze which instantly consumed it. Then she drew her blouse over her head. Her small breasts gleamed as if the snow had invaded the room. What shall I do with my blouse? Into the fire with it too, my pet.' The thin muslin went flaring up the chimney like a magic bird and now off came her skirt, her woollen stockings, her shoes and onto the fire they went too and were gone for good. The firelight shone through the edges of her skin. Now she was clothed only in her untouched integument of flesh. This dazzling, naked, she combed out her hair with her fingers. Her hair looked white as the snow outside, then went directly to the man with red eyes in whose unkempt mane the lice lived. She stood up on tiptoe and unbuttoned the collar of his shirt. What big arms you have. All the better to hug you with. Every wolf in the world now howled a prothalmion outside the window as she freely gave him the kiss she owed him. What big teeth you have. She saw how his jaw began to slaver. And the room was full of the clamour of the forest's Libestot, But the wise child never flinched as he answered, All the better to eat you with. The girl burst out laughing. She knew she was nobody's meat. She laughed at him full in the face. She ripped off his shirt for him and flung it into the fire in the fiery wake of her own discarded clothing. The flames danced like dead souls on Walpurgis' Nacht, and the old bones under the bed set up a terrible clattering. But she did not pay them any heed. Carnivore incarnate. Only immaculate flesh appeases him. She will lay his fearful head on her lap, and she will pick out the lice from his pelt, and perhaps she will put the lice into her mouth and eat them as he will bid her, as she would do in a savage marriage ceremony. The blizzard will die down. The blizzard died down, leaving the mountains as randomly covered with snow, as if a blind woman had thrown a sheet over them. The upper branches of the forest pines limed, creaking, swollen with the fall. Snowlight, moonlight, a confusion of paw prints, all silent. All silent. Midnight, and the clock strikes. It is Christmas day, the werewolf's birthday. The door of the solstice stands wide open. Let them all sink through. See, sweet and sound, she sleeps in Granny's bed. Between the paws of the tender wolf. Well, that was *A Company of Wolves* by Angela Carter, and what a work of genius! Before I tell you anything, I've just got to say what a fanboy I was of Angela Carter, particularly when she was when I was living in London in the eighties. She was writing; I devoured, pun intended, probably everything she produced. Everything she produced, and I think for me, it's my almost my perfect kind of story. It's gothic, and you know, I love gothic. I did *Sardonicus*, which is pretty gothic, and I love I love a gothic. I love Dracula. I love gothic. Okay. And yet I love the techniques of writing. And I don't just mean, I, I love prose style. We've got all sorts of prose style. We've got Hemingway. Hemingway's good. And he's a very sparse, pared down prose style. And we've got people like um, Cormac McCarthy with his, he, he doesn't put any punctuation. And he's got a polysyndeton. So he uses loads of ands. He changes, changes uh, sentences together with and all the time. And Angela Carter, she does all sorts of stuff. She emits main verbs, she uses loads of alliteration. She chains clauses together. It's music, you know. And if you listen to me talk about things I say, you know, any fool can say something smart that isn't true. But philosophers do that, and they say, you know, wise things and religious leaders etc cetera, etc, cetera. the art of the poet or the writer, if they want to be a pro stylist, is to say something exquisitely it doesn't have to be that profound or new. It just has to be said exquisitely. And Angela does this. So that's what she's got there. She's also got a just a subtlety. You may not think that was subtle, but I'll try and explain later on why I think it, she is, has got a very light touch with some things and just leaves them, just teases them as a hint that you go, ah, rather than smacking you in the face with them. So Angela Carter was born in 1940 and died in only aged 51 in 1992 in London, uh, which was such a loss to English literature. Um, uh, Carter was her first married name. She was born Angela Olive Pierce. And uh, they say they call her feminist, magical realist and picaresque. And she's best known for her book, The Bloody Chamber, from 1979, which this is taken from. This forms one of the three stories at the end, which are the werewolf, company of wolves and wolf alice there's a band called wolf alice who i actually like taken from that and these are seen together in the reworkings of the little red riding hood story and some are more than others this is clearly a reworking but she spends a lot of time at the beginning just setting up the milieu so we're living in this kind of north european forest at winter and in a peasant community there's all sorts of books like that gene wolf did a book called in a forest uh, of course, there's Mythago Wood by Robert Holtstock. But this is a, it's not a long story. And I would say a good third of it is just talking about you, the wolf in the pits, talking about werewolves in general. It isn't the the Little Red Riding Hood story. And then we get to the story, and the summary of the story is really, as you've heard, it is basically a bold young girl who's a bit cocky, who's been spoiled by the women in her life, not her dad so much, but her she's indulged by her mother and her grandmother. This will be a safeguarding issue now, of course. The mother wants to be, I don't know why, but she doesn't discipline her. She lets her go out and do something dangerous because she can't deny her. You know, you you can't, you've got to keep your kids safe in this modern world and you will be held responsible if you don't. But in the fairy tale world, it was okay. So out out she goes with her red riding hood. Uh, I guess this is a a hood that you wear for riding. I've often wondered about that. In this case, it's not, it's a shawl. And of course, look, the symbolism, and then we get into the symbolism. So the story is. She, so basically, she meets a handsome hunt, hunt, huntsman, as in the Little Red Riding Hood story, but it's mixed up because in the Little Red Riding Hood story, as you recall, there is the wolf and the huntsman. The huntsman is the force of good, masculine good, and he chops up the evil wolf. Is a force of potentially masculine evil. It's it, because she was Angela Carter. It's massively studied the story um, and is seen as a feminist kind of tale. I realise that half of my listeners, over half of my listeners, are actually women. So I'm going to be careful. I don't invoke your ire. Very often it seems to me. Now I'm speaking as a man, so uh, you know, shut your mouth, check your privilege, don't say anything about it. Yeah, okay, but I'm going to say anyway. You can disagree with it. That's fine. It's your right. So a lot of feminism that I grew up with, I did. I've been surrounded by women all my life, and uh, you know, the ones in the 80s and stuff were kind of we we hate men get lost. You know, it was a denial of masculinity, the toxic mas, and that is later the toxic masculinity crack, and all of this kind of thing. And and there's a, there's a wave that says, you know, men get lost. We don't like you. Just go away. Uh, you're evil. You're evil to a man. And I think um Carter doesn't do this. And there's the narrative of women being oppressed by men. And listen, I'm I'm totally aware of the the statistics of violence, overwhelmingly of men against women, and all of those crimes that are committed, and of course I'm not sticking up for them at all, uh, as you wouldn't expect me to. That narrative of woman as victim, I don't think Carter buys into. So what we have is this young woman, this cocky young woman, as an agent of her own destiny. She is strong. She goes walking through danger with her eyes open. She has a knife and she sorts it out in the end. She is not a victim. And she says, so she knows she's nobody's meat. And I actually think that is a far more powerful message than, than than the narrative that we could, she could have written a story that said, you know, men are all bastards, uh, you know, they're going to rip you up. And, uh, you know, she doesn't do that. What she does is she actually makes the girl choose. So the girl chooses sexual encounter with the wolf man. She isn't frightened of it. In fact, she laughs in his face. He's doing his best to be this big, tough guy. all the better to eat you. And she's just laughing at him because she knows her power. She knows her power. And she humbles the wolf. And she therefore conquers the rapacious nature of the wolf and transforms it into gentleness. You know, there's that. I don't know if you know Golden Syrup. There's a picture on it of um, a lion with honey coming out of it. And it is out of out of strength comes... Sweetness, and so the the task is to 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 socialize and habituate the beast. The, the the undoubted violence of men can be properly channeled and domesticated, and it sometimes it needs to be out there violent. But in the in the domestic situation, it, it should not. It's not its right place. And she uses her strength to do that. And so you might say, in my view, the proper relationship of I can't talk about things outside my experience, so I can't talk about the LGBTQ stuff because it's, it's not my experience. It's not, I'm not dissing it or it's just I don't know anything about it and it would be wrong for me to speak about it. But certainly between a man and a woman, I think the correct, <laughs> that's a heck of a word, but the, the best relationship is, is one of mutual strength and mutual, one isn't dominating the other, it's a partnership. That's what I'm trying to say in a laboured way. And it's to know that the woman is strong. If you've lived in a house of women with sisters and mothers and aunts and daughters, you know women are strong. They're not these weak victims. They often, very often, keep these big men in line. And I also think, as I'm going on about it, something that I think is important, some people portray the world as a war between men and women. And to me, most women I know don't feel like that. They feel, they, they have had dads that they've loved. They've had husbands or, or boyfriends that they've loved. They have sons they love. They have brothers that they love, you know. And so it's not a war where men and women are pitted and not, uh, pitted against each other. And I think Angela Carter is right in that she shows the strength of this girl. And if we if go on to... Um, Darwin, I don't even talk about Darwin. An evolution. There's there's natural selection, which is the survival of the fittest, which is about how the how the environment picks the ones who can jump higher and fly better and you know eat more stuff. But there's also sexual selection, which in human functioning human relationships is an is a power of the female. The men sport around to try and get her and she selects the best one she wants. And this leads, We we get very political. I'm getting more political as I go on, really. The, the old incel movement, the involuntary celibates, who think they have a right to some woman if a woman doesn't want to choose them. I'm afraid you don't, boys. You know, it's like you have to be useful in order to be... You have to offer something. And it's true the other way around, you know. Men will not select women who don't offer them anything. Um, I think men are probably too f- much fools for physical beauty and they there are women who would be much better for them and wouldn't treat them so badly who aren't necessarily Bridget Bardo or Margot Robbie, although b- both of those women seem to have be been very nice. I'm, honestly, I think that, actually. I'm not just saying that. Uh, I hear Margot Robbie and uh, I saw her being advertised with Charlize Theron. And I maybe said this. Charlize Theron and uh, um, Margot Robbie and who's the other? Should have been Kate Blanchett, really. I was swooning watching that, but um, yeah, no. Anyway, that was a digression, wasn't it? About from the seriousness. So you know, sexual selection is where, in in our species, the woman chooses the most fit mate, and it's a bitter, cold world. I'm really sorry, but if that's it, it's brutal. I mean, it's like getting eaten. Through natural selection. If you don't get chosen, you don't get chosen. You're not bringing enough to the table. After saying that, I think there's enough people in the world for. Well, she say. And if you know what that means, you know what that means. Um, there's, a, there's a crow for a crow somewhere or something like that. Anyway, there we go. So, Angela Carter, to my mind, a genius. I hope you liked it. Happy belated Halloween. It's been Halloween by the time you hear this. It isn't Halloween yet in, the, in my world. We did an eerie Cumbria thing, so we did live ghost stories. Um, it, we didn't have the crowds that we did pre-Covid because... Things have changed. When I went out on one Saturday night in the middle of the town, it was half empty on a Saturday night. And I remember when I was growing up, you couldn't move on a Saturday night. But things have changed. It's the economy as well, I suppose. But uh, so, but we had, we had a reasonable turnout. We had about 20, I think. And uh, I did the, the the Whitehaven Body Snatcher last, which is one I put out on the podcast, which is a quite a dark story. We did the Skullers and Bees, which I will publish at some point. And I did an old one, Dolson Vampire, We've got one actually on the 30th on Sunday in Cockermouth and uh, I'm going to do probably an abridged version of The Haunting of Unit 409 which seemed to have gone down well. That's been on the podcast and I'm going to do The Return of Bella Sheephead. I'm going to do that as a script with me and Ben and we're going to do it as a two-hander. So we're both going to do that. Then probably The Secret of Peel White, which we'll also do as a, as a two-hander as well. So uh, they're quite weird stories. The Discord group, because we've got a Discord group for the podcast and they... Very helpfully, helped me with that. I sent them some of the works, gave them an early look at it and they made some really useful. So Shay and Todd and Jody, thank you very much for your input. really helped improve the story, I think. So Ben's six foot four and tall and handsome and he had a little company of admirers <laughs> around him afterwards. I remember once there's a story, we, we did a murder mystery thing in, in a castle in Ireland and we were hired by a company who were based in Kildare and they were called the Smile Club. They were a nice couple. One, they they were like, you know, she'd been a model, actually, an Irish model, and uh, he—I can't remember—he was a—he was a computer guy. But they were a lovely couple, and they founded the Smile Club, and made a lot of money out of it. And it was like a dating club, but they arranged things, and they hired us to do this murder mystery thing. Well, afterwards, we kind of sat around, and it was me and Gareth and Ben. Oh, ben had the—I think all the males who who were on that group were like, "What? Well, what? We paid money to come here. and They're all—all—all the, all the women around Ben, and—and and they fed him uh, peach schnapps. I'm like, I don't want any of that and because we had to drive back the next day and he was so hungover. I could tell you a terrible story about that. He was so hungover, but he had the record of being sick in three countries, in Ireland, Scotland and England, um, as we drove back through um, from County Offaly right up through Northern Ireland to Scotland and then down to England. He, uh, yeah, he, he never, he's never drunk peach schnapps ever since, I don't think. Anyway, what's the call to action this week? Call to action, call to action. Yeah, I've, I've set up a Bandcamp account, and I've got some of my audiobooks on there. You can listen to them three times for free. Imagine that. But um, if you did want to support me by purchasing them, I need to think of a gift. If anybody's got any ideas, let me know. That, like, uh, that I could sell, basically, at Christmas. I've got my Ghost Stories book, Christmas Ghost story that always does okay. Um, but, you know, I wonder what I could sell a physical product or something. I don't know what I would make either, but any ideas, let me know. I'll probably be writing another Christmas ghost story being asked to do a novella. I've got an idea set in a castle, you know, Mr. Gothic. See how that gets on. So anyway, I hope you're all well. I should sign off now because I've got loads to do today.
0: Take thou my blood, my skin, my flesh, and walk. Father of my life, speak now, come now. Rise now from the forest, from the forest, from the field, and live. Take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Father of my life, speak now, come now. Rise now from the forest, from the forest, from the fields, and live. Take thou my blood, from my flesh, my skin, and walk.
1: you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just didn't like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.